People come to the San Francisco Bay Area for many reasons, a spectacular natural setting, a sophisticated lifestyle, and unique professional opportunities. Those seeking these qualities will find all that and more at Hacienda, where you can work, live, and grow. A Hacienda location means having the best of everything within easy reach. Whether it's world-class restaurants, theaters, and museums, the best learning institutions in the country, or some of the finest services available. That particularly applies to businesses wanting the best address to have easy access to needed resources, being among the industry leaders, and knowing that you are part of a region that leads the world in innovation. The result, an unbeatable combination that leads to success, and that is what you will find at Hacienda. Find out more by visiting Hacienda on the web at hacienda.org. I have not worked in construction, but I can imagine the difficult task of having to redesign or reorient something during the design phase in order to meet new criteria or requests made by the development team. Finally, Alice Technologies has a solution that helps transform the industry through its generative construction simulation. Our conversation today is with Renee Morcos, the founder and CEO of Alice, who takes us through the company's offering, how he came up with the product, and where technologies like these will take construction and design in the future. Welcome to the pod, Renee. Renee, good morning. How are you? Morning, Vlad. I'm doing well. Excellent. Where does this podcast find you? Where are you today? I am today in cloudy or foggy San Francisco, as it often is down here. Okay. <laughs> All right. Usually not in the winter. That's a kind of a summer thing typically, right? Right, right, right. It's, it's, it's so foggy that Silicon Valley has a name for the fog, which is Carl. Right. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, Renee, uh, by way of introduction, tell us a little bit about yourself uh, and, you know, Alice and sort of how the company came to be and, um, you know, what, what, what got you started? Yeah, so I, I'm a construction guy, you know. Um, I like to build stuff. When I kind of sat down and thought, like, what do I want to do with my life? And I went through sort of all kinds of options and ideas and, and I sort of realized, like, being out, outside, you know, um, in, in, in the, you know, in, in the in the fresh air sort of building things uh internationally right i was like oh this is really cool this, this job could take me around the world uh and it sounds like i could build really cool things like that always jazzed me and and it still does right like getting out of bed and going to build something is just really really fun um and so um my dad was a, a civil engineer he gave me a good piece of advice when i was growing up he said hey study anything you want just don't do civil engineering i said <laughs> okay. now i I know what I'm going to dedicate my life to. Thanks for the advice. Um, and so I studied civil engineering. I, I, I would actually, you know, interestingly enough, I would, I would cut class. I would go um, uh, uh, volunteer at construction sites. Uh, and I was volunteering at these sites and, and working on, and I would, you know, go to the coolest sites I could find in, in, in town. Uh, and I got some really, really cool experience, underwater pipeline, a university project, you know, and then basically um, I went from there Went to Afghanistan, you know, as a civilian contractor, built, you know, stuff for 13 months, designed, built, procured my own projects uh, worldwide at a $350 million gas refinery. Ended up doing a PhD at Stanford. Uh, used to consult six months a year. So that's how I funded the program, I was kind of working six months a year. Um, but I would kind of go to the lab, 
think around with algorithms and come back and, and um, you know, try it in the field. Uh, and I currently uh, teach. I currently am an adjunct professor at Stanford. And I teach construction management. And I teach the, the topic, you know, that I've kind of spent the last 13 years on, which is generative construction, really. Okay. So that's the background. So- so tell us about Alice. How did how did this start? I mean, undoubtedly out of your kind of work in this industry and sort of uh, you know realizing where some of the opportunities lie and coming out of Stanford, I imagine you know you're bombarded by ideas and this uh, immense creativity that that exists on campus there in Palo Alto, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, for me, there there's sort of two two insights. You know, I, I wish that there was one. It makes the story simpler, but there's really two. One is you know, I'm I'm building these landing landing strips for F-16s in Afghanistan, right? Really, sort of exotic location, but like they're fundamentally slabs, right? There's nothing kind of you know crazy. And I remember trying to figure out the optimal sequence, right? And I remember thinking like, you know, if I do like slab A1, then I'd have like 15 people over here, and I move like 20 people over there, right? I was like thinking like, man, I got to be kind of really stupid. I can't seem to figure out the optimal solution. And so, you know, I thought to myself, like, okay, well, why don't I go learn how the pros do it? So I ended up, you know, getting a master's from USC. I got a PhD from Stanford. I kept looking for this tool. And the idea was always really simple, which is why can't we have a computer tell us how to build something, right? And so when, when there's delays, right, when, when, you know, materials don't show up, supply chains are impacted now, right? Um, what do I do? Right, like, like it's it's 2021, right? Why doesn't the computer tell me how to build it, right? And that was really kind of one of the, the key ideas or, or problems, right? Like all the projects I had been on, there was never like there's never anything I could query. There was never anything I could ask of like, hey, what do I do? How do I get out of this gem, right? Yeah. On you know, and and we ended up building it. You know, and the other thing, you know, the other kind of motivating idea was what I noticed was construction sites are empty. And if you look at construct, like literally drive down the road, pick any construction site, you know, that you, you know, can, can find or any construction site that you've seen, you know, they're never like teeming with workers, right? There'll be like, you know, pockets of work, right? But there won't be lots and lots of like areas where work is happening. And so I measured it and it turns out that, you know, if your listeners want to take a guess, like... What would you guess is the average percentage of construction site space that is used for construction? Right? So if you look at an average construction site, how much of that area is is, is being used for construction at any given moment? Right? Maybe fifteen percent. Is that is that a, yeah. is that a good guess? Yeah, it's it's, it's like I kind of like to to sort of play that game with with, with folks, but um, the number is three. Wow. Yeah. And so 3%, and I, and I did this three times, right? I, I really, you know, did it once in the Netherlands, twice in the U.S., and we took photographs. Every 20 minutes, we take a photo and look at, um, you know, four columns was a zone. So if anybody was, or any work was occurring in a zone, then it would be counted as, as that zone is occupied and being worked on. Uh, and yeah, 3%. So it was like, you know, what the heck? Like 3% is a really low number, right? You know, asset utilizations in other fields you know, hover 60, 70, 80, right? And so I thought to myself, like, hey, if you can increase the, uh, if you can increase the space usage, right, you could probably speed up um, construction. And so that got me thinking, and, and exactly what you said, being at Stanford, being in Silicon Valley, um, you know, when you're a hammer, everything's a nail, right? So, you know, yeah. algorithm <laughs> is the way to solve right. it, right? 
And so, you know, I started, you know, taking some introductions to AI classes and I took a bunch of other classes and, and uh, really started experimenting with how to apply algorithms to solve, you know, construction simulations. Originally, I was trying to increase space usage. And then I started to realize like, hey, this thing, you know, there's this one moment where I was like, you know, I kind of felt like sort of Frankenstein in the lab, right? Where I was like, hey, this algorithm knows how to build. Like it doesn't know how to build very well, but it knows how to build, right? And so that was uh, that was kind of how the, the idea got started. Great. And so is it a company today? Is it uh, an application? Um, is it a service? Um, you know, where are you guys in kind of the, you know, product development cycle, if you will? So Alice is currently a company. And so it started as a PhD uh, program and we spun it out of the PhD and it's currently a company. Um, that's that's basically where we're at. We we founded the company in 2015, raised several uh, rounds of financing, um, and slowly kind of took us the classic Silicon Valley story, right? Three and a half years of kicking this around in the basement, um, you know, over and over again and trying to get it to work. It took us about three and a half years to crack the technology. Um, really difficult problem technically. Like we didn't know if it was doable. Um, and then, you know, spent about two years building a product around the technology, right? And uh, now that, that we've sort of done that, um, yeah, we, we, we've hit an inflection point, you know, uh, earlier this year, sometimes in January, February, and, and things are going really well. Companies, you know, scaling very rapidly. We're looking at, at, at Forex growth this year. So, yeah, it's... it's wow, it's okay, pretty, okay. Yeah. And where is it finding application? You know, uh, who's using it? Uh, you know, where? In this mm -hmm. country, you know, globally, yeah, we we tend to currently focus on on um, North America, so Canada, uh, U.S. Um, in Europe, uh, we focus on France and the U.K., uh, and we do have a couple of clients in in Southeast Asia, so like Singapore, Malaysia, uh, Thailand. So those are sort of the the the, the countries that we're working in. Um, we get to, we're used on, on large projects. So, well, me, medium, medium to large, hundred million dollars and up is, is okay. kind of where you want to use us. Um, we are used very, very effectively on infrastructure jobs, uh, bridges, tunnels, roads, uh, those sorts of projects. And, uh, we are also used very effectively on commercial projects um shopping malls uh, offices you know high rises that kind of stuff so that's that's yeah. our current application yeah, yeah yeah and you said you know larger scale projects sort of 100 million dollars plus um mm -hmm. is that also what makes it sort of viable from kind of a cost perspective too um is yeah. is, is it that kind of project which will also imply a certain level of complexity and sophistication that will you know be a good candidate for your service mm -hmm. yeah it, it is i mean the, the, what's really kind of remarkable about the technology is that um the software or the technology works on pretty much anything right and and you know if i had a dollar i, I often say for every time i've heard the following statement like Oh, I see how this technology would be applicable to those kind of projects, yeah. fill in the blank. But no way it would be applicable to my super secret, very special kind of project, right? Um, and I've heard this so many times. And what's really interesting is, is ultimately whether you're in residential, commercial, uh, infrastructure, industrial, like you are building elements. Those elements are constrained by physics, 
right? You you can't build a roof before the foundation. Yeah. And each of those elements needs some tasks and some resources. And what's interesting is when you boil the problem down to that, um, you suddenly realize that that yeah, construction is 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 relatively similar in some aspects, right? There there are different things that are different: financing, um, you know, quality control. Uh, the 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 types of you know are you using production rates or quantities or 3D models you know those things sort of vary but ultimately the, the core crux problem is is very very similar and so this, the technology is useful in anything that you want right we've run it on 12 million dollar parking lots we've done 3.7 billion dollar uh, airports and everything in, in between data centers uh, hospitals tunnels bridges and so on and so forth right so lots and lots of stuff um in terms of uh in terms of the um um size of project um you know we've noticed that if you're building a single family home you probably don't have a schedule right you're probably not optimizing right, right. right you're probably not really crunching anything right and so yeah if if you're not if you're not kind of you know uh, formally you know representing what you're doing in a schedule then you don't want a schedule optimization tool right? yeah yeah Very yeah yeah, and Renee, I totally realize that it's very difficult to, you know, describe, you know, how a technology can be used just via voice, which is what we're doing here on our on our podcast. But is there like an example that you can sort of illustrate to us, you know, how this could be used on, let's say, some project, you know, at the SFO or you know, some some place mm-hmm. like that? Would it actually tell you how to like sequence certain? certain sort of parts of that project and when, you know, things need to be ordered and when things need to be done, how many people you might need, maybe all of the above. I'm, I'm you know, just curious, you know, how exactly this uh, would come into play. Yeah, so, so there is actually a pretty easy way to explain what we've done. Uh, and, and the way to explain it is, is what we have done is generative construction. And so, you know, folks might be like, what, what is generative construction? I've never heard of it. Yeah, no one's heard of it because it didn't exist. Before, you know, we invented it. And so what is generative construction? The way I explain generative construction is with an example of generative or parametric design, right? So let's start with parametric. If you're unfamiliar with the term parametric, don't worry, you'll be an expert in about 30 seconds. So <laughs> Great. Yeah, so um, let, let's assume that you're drawing a, a cup, right? Just a really simple glass, you know, glass, right? In a, in a, in a, in a design tool. And so, you know, you, you draw, you know, a circle, uh, you know, an upper circle, a lower circle, and a plane between them, right? That kind of draws a, a rough cylindrical shape. And someone comes in and says, no, I, I want a bigger cup. So you redraw it, a smaller, you're, you're going to redraw the cup every time. So somebody somewhere along the line said, hey, that's silly. Why don't I just invent this tool and you give me the parameters, you give me the height and the diameter. And if you change those, the tool redraws the object. Does that make sense? Yep. So that's parametric technology, right? Um, you know, the, you know, arguably like very complex, you know, spreadsheets like financial models could be argued to be parametric, right? You you change some of the inputs and lots of things kind of ripple through the system and you get some outputs, right? Yeah. Um, this was done in in the 1980s by a company called PTC, Parametric Technology Corporation. Back in the 80s, they sort of invented this thing, and then they could basically uh, change a parameter. Here's an example. My boss in Afghanistan walked into the office and said, hey, I want to move this staircase from the left side of the building to the right side of the building. So I'm thinking like, you know, shoot, right? Like I got to change, like 
all the elevation drawings, all the cross-section drawings, all the plans, like all of that stuff changes based on this one thing that, that, that he said, right? If the tool's parametric, you simply move the staircase and everything updates. And in our field, we call it BIM. So building information modeling is parametric. You can go to BIM model and you can say, change the height of the um, floor from, you know, whatever, 14 feet to 16 feet. And um, that ripples through your system. The, the, the column heights change, the floor heights change, the cross sections, the elevations, and all that kind of stuff happens. Does that make sense? Yep. Awesome. Uh, by the way, uh, BIM is, is two technologies. It's parametric and it's object-oriented, right? Yep. It is, yep. um, you know, it, the, the, the model understands the column made of concrete on the third floor. It's an object. So th that's basically what BIM is. So in the last three to five years, we've seen the advent of generative design. What does that mean? It means I, the human, don't want to change the parameters manually one by one. I want you, the software, to go from all the options, right, go from, you know, one to a thousand, right, and then give me the building with the lowest energy requirements, the building with the greatest rentable area, the engine with the greatest power output. So that's what generative is. Um, does that make sense? Yep, absolutely. Perfect. And so what, what we have done as a company is we have invented generative construction. First time ever. Never been done before. Um, yep. It's interestingly, even today, people tell me it's not possible. I'm like, we, we've got it. I swear to God. <laughs> um, but um, the way it works is that for us, we don't change, you know, height, radius, diameter. We change number of crews, number of um, the sequencing of those crews, the overtime, number of cranes, type of concrete. Uh, we can change the design inputs. We can change you know, anything that you'd want to change for construction. So that's what we have. And the software, yeah. every time yeah. you press the button, goes through six million sequences. And so in the course of an afternoon, really easy for you to generate 600 viable ways of building a given construction project. Like, think about that closer. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. What's what's also interesting about that is that it provides a level of you know transparency. I think in terms of yeah. um, you know what what can be done and when it will be done. Most importantly, I think that's probably one of these things that kind of you know haunts every project manager. Right? Uh, am I on time? Am I getting stuff done? Right? And I'm curious if that's been one of the applications of this tool as well. Absolutely. So what's what's really the way it works is that what we've done is we separated planning from scheduling. So those two terms are used relatively interchange interchangeably. In sure. Industry. Yep. But with Alice, you know, that, 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 uh, that crime is, is we joke punishable by death, right? Like planning and scheduling yeah. is, is very separate. And so planning is setting up the rules that govern the project. Scheduling is crunching those rules. Now, the, the reason that's significant is that, the humans set up the rules, right? The software crunches them. So what that means is that you tell the software, hey, here's the tasks I need to build a column, yeah, apply yeah. to all the columns, but the software is the one that goes and builds it. The reason that's significant is it ties directly to your, your comment, which is you when you today get a, a P6 schedule, you have no idea whether it's valid or not. And, and we know from you know giving 120 tasks to 40 stanford students a schedule not a single schedule came back with no errors right <laughs> and so you know developers today when they are looking at these p6 and i've talked to you know developers investors they look at these p6 schedules and they're like i have no idea right like you go to the the the, the general contractor and you're like hey 
uh, your, your schedule says 14 months. Can you build it in 12? And, you know, two days later, they send you a schedule that says 12 months. You know, how viable is it? What thought went into it? You don't know. Sure. The sure. fact that, that, that you have now removed the human from crunching that, right, means that you have much greater belief in what the schedule is saying, right? And so that increased um, belief or reliability uh, into the, 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 the simulation or the, the schedule is, is very, very valuable. Right. That, that's one. That's pre-construction or, or even you know, during construction. The other benefit is that when there's delays, um, what you can very rapidly see is what is the, um, what is the, great, the biggest impact you know, thing that you can do to get the, the, the maximum benefit for the least amount of money. Right. Yeah. 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 Um, have you, you know, looked at, uh, maybe you personally haven't, but I'm, but I, but I am curious about, you know, this is a, this is a very sophisticated piece of technology, um, that, you know, requires, you know, somebody's understanding of, of a, of a number of different, you know, areas that maybe traditional construction doesn't typically offer, right? So I'm curious, you know, what kind of uh, uh, skills do people need to have in order to operate this effectively? And could you, you know, hand it over to somebody? You know, it's like, you know, I, I can maybe, you know, since you were talking about Afghanistan, but, you know, thinking about, you know, selling like a, like a very sophisticated, you know, fighter jet to, uh, you know, another country, but you, you have to teach them how to fly it and use it and that kind of thing, right? Yeah. Is the is the construction industry ready for something like this? You know, it's funny you use the construction jet an, uh, analogy. Um, we I often say that that people today in construction are, are trying to fight a war with muskets, and, and we invented an F sixteen jet, <laughs> right. right? But right. Um, what's really remarkable about the technology, and and I think it's because I'm a construction guy, right? That that's my background. I'm not a software guy that came to construction. I'm a construction guy that learned some software. Um, the tool is incredibly easy to learn. Like I could teach you how to, you know, schedule a slab and four columns in Alice in, in you know, 20 minutes. Right. Um, people learn how to use the full suite and I'm talking like the whole shebang, everything, all the bells and whistles, everything that we've invented, you know, a day and a half, you know, a couple of days. It, it, it's very, very intuitive. There, there's not, there's three rules basically that you're setting up physics, like what elements sit on top of which elements, right? Um, the second one is uh, grouping. So, you know, I, I, I'm not going to manage things, you know, column by column. I'll group all the columns into one group. Right. And, and that's the task. And the third one is what we call recipes. And so to build a column, I need five tasks and these resources. So that's sort of roughly how, how, how it works. Um, the... You know, there's not much that you need to learn, right? Um, it's it's very very like, yeah, the 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 planning part of the software, which is really where you encode like the the constraints, um, has two properties. One, it's it's very easy to understand, right? Like by literally anybody, right? I've taught people like like friends of mine that are you know outside construction, like they've sort of played around with it, um, yeah. and it's scalable. What's really cool is that you input like 10, 10 rules and it and it generates three thousand tasks. So how many updates do you guys do based on you know real world application? Do you ha have you found yourself having to sort of you know tweak things here and there? 
or you know it's you know flexible based on you know who the user is and what the application is so the, the, maybe you could there's several ways the question could be interpreted are you asking um in terms of the fundamental constraints like how many times have we had to tweak the underlying kind of intelligence of the engine or are you that's asking exactly it yeah it? yeah so, so this, yeah great so th this was a, a question asked an investor asked me this question like maybe five years ago and he said he said to me he said renee what metrics do you keep track of and i thought about it and i said you know at this stage of the game i keep track of what are the product requests that we get from our clients and he said tell me more i said well there's three kinds of requests we get um the first request is they, they, they ask for something and we're like, whoa, like we, we have no idea how to put that in our system. Like we don't, we don't even know how to formulate that, that question, right? Like we've got to go rethink, you know, fundamentally, like what are the pieces of, of, of what Alice can represent? Yeah. Because, you know, Alice understands cranes and crane radii and crews and materials and consumable reasonable. Like Alice understands all of these things. Um, and so, um, the uh, the second layer, right, would be the client asks us something and we go, oh, yeah, yeah, like you guys are asking for calendars that are specific to tasks and not specific to crews or you guys want us to create a, a module that is, you know, for cranes or something like, you know, it's, it's a piece of the puzzle, right? We're like, we get we get what the piece of the puzzle is. It's on the roadmap and, and, and we'll get around to it at some point. And, and the third one, the third type of request would be somebody asks us something and we go, oh yeah, that's a minor tweak. Like you, we have start to start, you know, finish to start relationships, but you want start to start relationships. So it was a little twist to the tail, if that makes sense. Um, and so, you know, five years ago, you know, once or twice a year, we'd get asked a question that would fit into the first part, you know, of what I was talking about. Like, whoa, yeah. like how do we, like, how do you even like get the computer to understand that? Um, at this point, you know, it's been two, three years, two and a half, three years. Like, we don't even get the third one anymore. You know, like, we've cracked it. There's, there's like, there's no question, right? Like, that, this does not keep, like, this was a question that would keep me up a lot. Like, oh, my God, what if we, we, we can't figure it out? What if, like, construction is too complicated, right? But there's no, it's been over two years. There's no constraint that we've been given that we can't put into the system. Yeah. We, yeah. We've, we've sort of ticked that box. Wow, that's that's amazing, um, Renee. On the sort of you know value line in terms of you know, do you save money or do you provide them extra flexibility or do you give a company an ability to see something they weren't able to see before and schedule things better and be more efficient? You know, wh where on on that line would you say the value proposition is for Alice? I'll give you two two answers. Uh, Alice is is useful in in. Two, two sort of values or two phases of a project. Pre-construction, so while you're still simulating, figuring out what are, how are we going to go about building it, right? Really, for, for example, in infrastructure jobs really like this, right? Especially if it's self-perform, right? Uh, the other value proposition is um, the other value proposition is during construction. Things are going wrong, you know, materials are not getting delayed, there's design issues and so on, what do I do, right? Uh, do I resequence? Do I add crews? Do I send people home? Like, you know, what, what What do I do, right? So those are the two fundamental values that we give. And what we're realizing is that the reason that companies like Alice 
is that what it provides is reliability. What we're realizing is, is, is contractors, um, everybody likes to save time and money. But yeah. what, what I'm worried about, right, is not, you know, I got 10 jobs. Six of them are doing great. Four of them, you know, maybe they're not doing great. Maybe I'm uncertain. Or 10 of them are telling me they're doing great. It's, it's more usually the, 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 the pattern, right? But I know that from the 10 that are telling me that they're doing great, three of them might not be. Right. And so can you give me reliability and insight into the ones that are not doing great and make sure that, that there's less variance, right? So when I finish my year, I'm not looking at eight projects that did well and two that didn't, but I'm looking at 100% that did well, right? And that, that is a, a incredibly valuable value proposition. Yeah. Yeah. Have you found, uh, your customers, you know, utilizing the service, you know, for interesting things that was maybe unexpected, any, any kind of anecdotes around that? It's, it's funny. So again, if you go back like four years, I would kind of wake up at three in the morning. Like what if, what if the humans have the optimal solution already? Right. Like what if this pro like, what if this problem is not that complicated and the humans already know everything, right? Like we're going to put all this effort into it. And then, you know, it's like, yeah, you just told me what I already know, right? Um, it turns out that, that yeah, that was an unfounded, uh, you know, a concern of mine. Um, we have never found a situation where we can't squeeze, you know, call it at least 3% odd in, 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 in performance. Um, usually it's more around that 15-ish, 17% yep. on the duration, 13 on the labor and equipment costs. Um, and And almost every project and i can't say everyone there's some twist to the tail there's some you know something you didn't expect and it's funny because originally when we started working on the software when when it did something we didn't expect we're like oh it's a mistake like you know we got to go back to the drawing board now it's been long enough where you know I, i've seen this right a new client comes on board they run it and, and it tells them something like you know they, they add a crane right and, and it doesn't speed up construction so like, oh, what the heck? The system sucks. And, you know, it's yeah. like, guys, guys, <laughs> right? calm down. I, like, believe me, it works. And it works like magic. Like, you can bet your bottom dollar on it. And so then, then we look into the data and it goes, oh, well, yeah, we added a crane, but we don't have enough steel crews, right? And it's like, okay, now if we add a crane and we add some steel crews, now you'll start seeing an advantage. Um, you know, uh, here's another one. Right, we're working on a on a um, on an infrastructure job, right? Um, uh, that infrastructure job um, requires waterproofing, and so what they originally were thinking is, hey, we're 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 behind schedule. We we got to keep waterproofing throughout the year. Yeah, and so that was that's the you know that's kind of the the, the the thinking, right? We should we should do this year round, right? Because waterproofing is hard to do in the winter. Whenever it rains, you can't do it. And so ideally you just waterproof in the summer. And so, um, you know, as a human, you're thinking, well, if I'm delayed, let me, let me keep working year round. Um, it turns out that when you run the simulation and you just waterproof in the summer, the software kind of resequences around it and the completion time is pretty much the same. So you're seeing that like your, your gut sense is not always correct. Right. Uh, and what this allows you to do is very quickly see the impact of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, very interesting. Um, Renee, the construction industry, as you and I know, 
you know, has been slow to change. Um, you know, when you talk about technology and construction, I think you can, you know, pinpoint to a few things here and there. Um, do, do you see the industry more open to sort of these new kind of ideas and, and, and ways of doing things? Um, because in a way, one could argue, you know, this is ripe for disruption as well, right? The way, the way things have been done over the last, I don't know, thousands of years, perhaps, right? You know, I, I don't agree with that sentiment, you know, at all. Um, you know, our field has been late to adopt technology, but from my research, and I really, you know, trust me, I spent six years of my life, you know, earning $24,000 a year sitting in a library, you know, or, or you know, these days on a laptop and accessing libraries, right? But reading stuff about construction. Um, the, the reason that construction has not digitized is not because we are all lazy and stupid and don't want to do it. It's simply put because our problem just happens to be bigger and more complex to digitize than other problems. Um, and, and, and the, the, you know, there, there, there's kind of some really good proof points that are, that are hard to argue. Take a look at BIM. BIM has been around since the eighties. Um, the technology like has been around. People have applied it. To, it was around for mechanical engineering. Yeah. People have applied it to uh, uh, buildings, to architecture, um, since the 80s. Archicad, right, uh, and so on. It, the issue wasn't in the technology. The issue was that the buildings are bigger and more complicated than engines. The models are, at least. And so we don't think of them as such, but the computers couldn't crunch those models. When I started my PhD in 2009, the big question was, how big is the BIM? How, you know, how many megabytes can it, you know, and I remember Revit at the time could do like three story buildings, right? And Bentley could do like a hundred megabyte file, right? And yeah. the reason was that Bentley uses the federated database approach. So, you know, it had many folders, you know, the, the, the columns were in one folder, the slides were in one folder, et cetera, which meant they could handle bigger files, but the parametrization was more difficult. Revit had one file, right? But uh, so the parametrization was better, but smaller, smaller, you know, models, right? But the computers caught up in my mind at some sometime around 2015, right? Um, we could not digitize construction until we digitize our input, which was design. And so, if you look at the history of digitization, like finance was one of the first things to digitize. Um, yeah, I mean, how hard is it to digitize, you know, accounts, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like, I mean, so that, that's kind of why we are in the situation we're in. The thing that's really exciting is that there's several, there's a confluence of several factors, right? Um, one, the machines have caught up. Two, the money started, you know, started to be pumped into our field. So, you know, if you look at CB Insights or any sort of the, the, the venture capital um, uh, reports, right? Sure. 2017 yep. saw a 44% jump in investment into construction tech from the prior year, you know, and in the last six years, something like $6 billion of investment have been pumped into construction tech. And so, um, the, um, the, the, what we're living through now is, is what happened to manufacturing in the seventies and the eighties. Yeah. yeah. So, so I disagree with it. I think that that construction is innovative, right? If you give people the right tools, and like every other field, you know, the, yeah. there, there's always somebody that wants to push for, for innovation and, and push for a competitive advantage. And and this is kind of where I was going. Um, 
you know, my my question, you know, was not meant to in any way, um, you know, imply that, like you said, you know, the industry was, you know, lazy or didn't, you know, appreciate change. Um, but you know, that's great insight. That part of it was that the you know problem was really big. Where I was going with this is there is there is you know now there is a higher amount of money invested in innovation in in this industry, um, which you know in some ways one could argue you know lags some other industries like I don't know you know communication you know that kind of stuff right you know manufacturing and things like that right and that's that's where I was going you know are are you seeing are you seeing that and are are you seeing kind of the industry being more open to you know, using different tools and you know, you know, tinkering essentially with with how they could do things better, right? Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's no question in, in my mind, right? The, the the it's happening, right? If you look at what's going on with the field, like when when I started my PhD, people were coming to Stanford and and you know asking us what has been, right? Today, like. A lot of companies have innovation managers, digitization, you know, sure. head of digitization, head of innovation. Like, you know, there isn't really a construction company, in my opinion, worth their salt that doesn't have some kind of a, an innovation strategy, right, of how they're going to leverage these technologies out there. What's, you know, the, one of the, the questions that, you know, why do startups exist? And, and the answer is startups are effectively the outsourced R&D departments of these large companies. It's incredibly exciting, right? Because you can suddenly now access a thousand different R and D departments that are working very, very hard to to create these new inventions. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, for my kind of two final questions, um, Renee, one of them is you know on a sort of personal basis, but you know what 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 does Alice mean? Where did that name come from? Well, it was four thirty in the morning, and I want to go to bed, and uh, <laughs> I needed a, I needed a name. And, uh, you know, I was like, you know, what are we doing? Well, it's artificial intelligence, you know, construction engineering, right? Construction management, construction, artificial, ACE, ACE, you know, ACE, Alice. Yeah. Artificial intelligence, construction engineering, Alice, right? That was it. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. And um, looking at sort of, uh, you know, a younger demographic that wants to, you know, get into the industry today, you know, what would you tell somebody, uh, maybe what do you tell your Stanford students, right? You know, how, how do they, how should they be approaching, you know, this industry and what, what do you think they, they need to, you know, what are the skills that they would need to be successful in it? Yeah, I'll tell you exactly what I tell the Stanford students. I, I tell them, you can buy an hour of compute time, an Amazon EC2 server. And I don't know what the current cost is, but when I last looked at it, it was 1.3 cents an hour. It is an incredible amount of crunching power that you can buy for 1.3 cents. If you are going to base your career based on how many, um, based on number crunching, then I hope you'll be satisfied with a salary of 1.3 cents an hour. If you are going to base your career on setting up what needs to be crunched and interpreting results, you're going to have a very long, very lucrative career. Uh, the pattern that we've seen over and over again uh, at Stanford and Silicon Valley is what technology does is it becomes the entity that does the number crunching and the human becomes what sets up what needs to be crunched and interprets the results. And if, if you view your career that way, right, and, and, and learn how to set up 
these these systems, right? The question you should ask yourself is how many machines do you control? And those machines these days, like you can get online and just purchase, you know, access to Alice, access to lots of other you know, software companies out there, and learning how to rapidly, you know, get those systems online, use them for your processes, and then move on to the next one is is the name of the game. So that's that's the advice I'd give. Yeah, that's amazing. That's amazing. Renee, thank you very much for taking the time to chat with us. It was great learning more about you and what Alice does. Um, stay safe and, uh, you know, Happy New Year. Absolutely. It was really great to be here. Great to chat to you, Vlad. Thanks for inviting me and Happy New Year to, to you as well and your listeners. Thank you for listening to the Real Perspectives podcast. Stories like these help us shape our understanding of the industry. And we appreciate you taking the time to listen to it. Please follow us on any app where you get your podcasts and tell your colleagues about us. Thank you in helping us spread the word about our work and the industry that is changing the face of business. Oh, 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 oh